You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're tuned in to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. It is the 30th of August uh, on this Tuesday and it's just clocked over to 7am. You're joined by me, Genevieve, Jasmine and Carnegie this morning. Good morning, everyone. Morning. Good morning. <laughs> Such a mouthful in the morning. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. <laughs> How are we all doing? Quite well. Good. 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 That's good. How are you, Jen? Yeah, I'm good. I wasn't here last week. It was um, like, I think 80% of the population now a little bit run down and sick. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Feels like everyone's got like the sniffles or I don't know, just really burnt out, I guess. So... It was nice to just do nothing. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did anyone get up to anything nice on the weekend? Um, we've very recently moved, so we just have been. Um, and then we, we moved and then we went overseas, so the house hasn't really been, like, attended to in any capacity. Mm. So we just spent the weekend doing that, which was quite nice. Yeah. Like, mm. sorting things mm. out. Oh. I, I did have a full-blown hay fever attack. But oh, no. It's the rain. I'm sure it's the rain. <laughs> it, well, the rain <laughs> lifts all the dust, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I think the moisture mm. and the mold and the damp. It sounds so bad. nice. <laughs> mm. um, I um, got out of town not not too far. Um, I went for a little bushwalk down at Werribee Gorge. I've oh, never beautiful. been. Yeah. Yeah, I love it down there. Right? Yeah. yeah. It's so beautiful. It's really nice to see all like the um, native flowers beginning to bloom for spring. Mm-hmm. It's nice. Yeah, we've had some absolute beautiful blue days, blue mm. sky days. So that yeah, sounds like such a good thing to do. Um, all right. Uh, talking about what's up on the show this morning, we're going to be playing um, a conversation that was had on uh, the radioactive show. Uh, Margie Pistorius, uh, who Emma had a conversation with uh, back on the 27th of August. Um, it's about uh, Wage Peace, about the upcoming, uh, sorry, Margie is from Wage Peace, and it's about the upcoming Disrupt Land Forces event, which is a counter event to Land Forces, uh, which is the largest land based weapons expo in the Southern Hemisphere. So we'll be uh, listening to that incredible conversation that was uh, aired just a few days ago. And then uh, we'll be playing a conversation that Ayan had on Women on the Line uh, with Dana, who is a proud Palestinian um, and member of uh, BDS, so the Boycott Diet 
divestment and sanctions movement, which aims to uh, support Palestinians and uh, avert investment away from the Israeli state. Um, so Dana just explains the movement and some of the common reasons why people have been opposing it uh, in recent time. And then uh, we'll be speaking with Dr. Eve Rees, who is a writer, historian, podcaster and lecturer um, who has re- recently um, created an anthology of trans and gender diverse stories, which is, I think, the first of its kind in kind of mainstream media in Australia. Um, and that book is called Nothing to Hide. It releases today. So um, Eve will be on the show to talk to us about the book. Um, and then to finish off the show, we'll be listening to an interview I did with um, Singaporean activist Sean Menon. Um, just a few days ago about, um, you know, what the LGBTQI plus youth in Singapore experience in terms of um, societal pressures and mental health and how repealing Section 377A may or may not affect that. Cool. All right. We'll be right back with the news headlines for today after this quick announcement. The Seoul Musmi Centre for Performing Arts and Monica Singh Sangwan present a year-long season of solo and group Odyssey dance performances on Saturday, September 17th and 24th at Dance House and October 1st at Fairfield Amphitheatre. All shows will be accompanied by our live Odyssey music ensemble. Odyssey is an Indian classical dance style that is both traditional and contemporary in its intrinsic nature. Join us for what can only be described as a pilgrimage where the dancer and musicians merge together as co-performers. Tickets available via our website, sohamasmi.org. This project has been financially supported by Regional Arts Victoria and Creative Victoria. We also acknowledge Dance House, Multicultural Arts Victoria and 3CR Community Radio as supporters in this endeavour. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Um, News headlines for this morning... First up, we have some headlines from India where the Supreme Court has said that queer relationships and unmarried partnerships are as real as traditional families and deserve equal protection under law and benefits under social welfare schemes. In India, the predominant understanding of the concept of a family, both in the law and in society, is that it consists of a single unchanging unit with a mother and father who remain constant over time and their children and um, LGBTQI plus relationships are not legally recognized. So um, this is a big step. Uh, The Modi government has opposed legal recognition of LGBTQI plus relationships in the Delhi High Court, where several petitions have been filed. Um, And the observations are significant um, by the Supreme Court, as activists have been raising these issues of recognizing LGBT marriages and civil unions, as well as allowing live-in couples to adopt after um, the Apex Court decriminalized homosexuality in 2018. Um, Other news from Australia. Yesterday was Equal Pay Day, um, which marks 60 days after the end of the financial year, symbolizing the extra days Australian women must work on average to earn the same uh, salary earned by men. Uh, the pay gap this year is 14.1%, a rise of 0.3 percentage points in six months. Um, this past weekend was the annual Freedom Day Festival on Gurunji country out in Kalkurunji. 
Um, for those who don't know, it's a commemoration and celebration of the courageous stockmen and their families who stood up to power and won, forever changing the nation. We remind everyone that Gurindji country is still an incredibly important heartland for those campaigning for change. The Wave Hill walk-off remains an enduring story and symbol of hope. Uh, and it was announced a few days ago on the 28th of August that uh, 10,000 10, nurses and midwives will have their university degrees paid off in full uh, to boost staffing across Victoria's health system. Thousands of nurses and midwives will be recruited and trained for free as part of a $270 million initiative announced by the Victorian government. Uh, It's under the five-year program, all new domestic students enrolling in a professional entry nursing and midwifery course in 2023 and 2024 will receive a scholarship of up to $16,500 to cover course costs. Uh, I think it's important to acknowledge... um, I have a friend who's currently a midwife and a nurse and she simply said, oh, why don't they just pay us more? Mm. Then more people will do it. That seems to be a sentiment echoed by a lot of people who are working in healthcare. It's sort of um, perhaps a distraction on what really is um, a much bigger issue. Definitely. And you've got a whole bunch of hundreds of thousands of uh, nurses, midwives and healthcare workers that have uh, been working incredibly hard over the pandemic, over hours, ridiculous days and night shifts. and Often unsafe situations. Yeah, exactly. And kind of uh, they don't really get any compensation mm-hmm. for that. So anyway. Um, and taxpayers in Victoria are paying $1 million to keep unsentenced people in jail. Um, from June 2014 to June 2022, that number of people who hadn't been sentenced increased by 143%. The latest figures from Corrections Victoria showed that the total prison population, 40, um, out of the total prison population rather, 44% of people had not yet been sentenced. Out of women, 56% were unsentenced. Changes were made to bail laws in 2017 and 2018 after the Burke Street attack. And these changes mean that people now need to show compelling reasons or exceptional circumstances to be released on bail. We know that these broken bail laws disproportionately affect First Nations women and families and lead to deaths in custody. You can sign the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Services petition to fix Victoria's broken bail laws by going to vowels.org.au forward slash bail hyphen petition. And we're going to go to a quick announcement. Um, We'll be right back after this. Ross House is a five-storey heritage-listed community building situated in the heart of Melbourne at 247 to 251 Flinders Lane, just up from DeGrave Street and next to the City Library and CAE. Ross House is the only community-owned and managed building in Australia, home to many of Melbourne's charities and not-for-profit groups. Ross House has been a pioneer in the social and environmental movements since 1987. Ross House is a 3CR supporter. Next up, we're going to play you a track by Pip Millet. Uh, this is actually a cover of a classic Otis Redding track, uh, Try a Little Tenderness. Oh, she may be weary. Young girls, they do get weary. Wearing the same old jacket. 
dress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, but when she gets weary, try a little tenderness. Na 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 na. You know she's waiting, just anticipating. Things that she never, never, never possess. But while she's there waiting, try a little tenderness. That's all you got to do. It's not just sentimental, no, no, no. She has her griefs and cares, but the soft words they all spoke so gentle, yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes it easier. Some girls they don't forget it. Love is their only happiness. But it's all so easy. All you gotta do is try a little tenderness. That's all you gotta do. You squeeze her. Don't tease and have a Got to try a little tenderness. And all you got to do, you got to squeeze her. Don't tease her, never believe her. Got to try, oh, try a little tenderness. Tenderness. All you got to do. Get to know how to love her now, real good. Oh, and try and try a little tenderness, try a little tenderness, a little. Try, I got you. That was Pip Millet's cover of Try a Little Tenderness. All right, we're going to go into a conversation uh, that Emma Crunch from the Radioactive Show had with Margie Pistorius from Wage Peace about the upcoming Disrupt Land Forces event, which is a counter event to Land Forces, the largest land based weapons expo in the Southern, Southern Hemisphere. And this conversation was originally aired on the 27th of August in 2022. And to speak to Margie Pistorius about the upcoming Disrupt Land Forces event in Mianjin, Brisbane. Thanks for joining us on the Radioactive Show, Margie Pistorius. And um, would you like to start out by just uh, letting us know who you're organising with at the moment um, and introducing yourself? Yeah, I'm from Wage Peace. Uh, we're a small anti-militarist 
organisation. And at the moment, we're organising to disrupt the big land forces exhibition, which is a, um, you know, it's supposed to be every two years, but they held it last year because it was running a year late. But it's a massive weapons exhibition. And they are busy organising to disperse $30 billion a year over, you know, through this 10-year period. And so we are wanting them to go away. We don't mm. think they should be organising and we don't want them in our town. They're in the middle of Greensland and hardly anybody here thinks it's a good idea. Mm. And that's, of course, in, in Mianjin, otherwise known as Brisbane, where sure. the pre- the previous last year's conference was held as well and you had a um, a great opposition event then. Are you? How are you hoping to build on that this year? Well, we're hoping to strengthen our position, not necessarily make it, uh, you know, not not necessarily more people, but certainly uh, smarter and thoughtful, work work easier with more outcome is our thinking. And we're getting better at uh, thinking about how we do disruption. We're thinking we want to do creative disruption that our people really want to be part of and want to keep doing and want to, you know, continue in. Um, and so it has to be quite sort of, we say pleasant for us, unpleasant for them. So we're going to be very welcoming and creative and thoughtful with each other uh, while being uh, unwelcoming and uh, mean to the visiting arms dealers. Mm. That's what our, that's our thinking. And and we're using our uh, this sort of theory of disruption really comes from New Zealand where they did shut down a sequence of um, of of these weapons events. Uh, they didn't shut them down during them, but they made them so unpleasant that they stopped putting them on in New Zealand. Mm, that's interesting. Um, mm. When was that? Would you be able to just tell us a little more? Oh, around, I think, 2016, 17, 18, mm. there was a series mm. of them in uh, the Auckland region, I think, mm. and eventually they made them so uh, unpleasant and they shut them down. You know, they just disrupted them so much that, the next one got cancelled. So there was like mm-hmm. three in a row and then the next one got cancelled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is insane. I haven't had one since. And so we're using their methodology really. We we uh, had sessions with them to learn and then we practised last year. So we, we want to – the idea is that we get together, we have a good time, we do stuff that's creative. You know, people don't like – it's it's hard being in a disruptive space unless you're really connected and having not exactly fun but, you know, that you have a sense of satisfaction about mm. what you do that you feel like you're heading somewhere. So the idea is really to make it so um, discomforting that they don't come back. Mm-hmm. And, this, and so we've got different ways and thoughts about how to do that, sometimes outside the venue, sometimes inside the venue, and we're, we'll be replicating or doing some of the things we did last year, we think. Mm-hmm. And so the the conference itself or the exhibition, as you say, that's, um, who does attend that? Major military corporations from around the world and governments, or what is the makeup of? Well, the Queensland government is the major sponsor. So uh, at the moment, what's happening is the federal government is dispersing about you know twenty to thirty billion a year over ten years. So that will increase over the ten years, presumably as more people line up for it. Um, and then there's a bunch of um, big companies, the big the big US and European companies that take their places, they're trying to get contracts or they already have contracts with the Australians. And then you've got them doling, they they get the big bulk of the money and then they dole it out 
to what they call small and medium-sized enterprises, which is sort of code for Australian organisations or Australian businesses. Um, and then the idea is that they drag each other up by the bootstraps and all become very, very technologically able. But the truth is a lot of the money, there's so much money that, you know, there's a lot of, it. most, you know, a good chunk of it goes out through the corporations themselves. That's how they make their big profits, by lining up in, in line with government who give them money and then the profit, then they just take the profits. Um, the truth is they make a whole bunch of projects. They're never really used for defence. They're just used for boys with toys, these sort of jet fighter projects or these big ship projects. Or, you know, they talk about them as being defence projects, but half the time they don't even get going. When they do get going, they have, you know, such serious problems that they can't staff them or they can't, you know, they can't operate them and they don't get them finished on time and they blow out of budget. So they're just basically they're sort of these just these places where people wallow in a lot of cash. Mm. And then the the main if if there is um a transfer of money towards weaponry, which there is, it's mainly in the areas of uh small arms. Uh, transporters, transport equipment and attack helicopters, that sort of thing, that get used against First Nations people and against civil resistance. Um, so it's, it becomes that sort of policing type equipment. Um, in, in, and we can see this sort of rolling out very clearly in Myanmar or West Papua, where it's, you know, you're bringing in huge numbers of military using transporters and using um, these sort of tanks, these militarised, um, you know, massive iron trucks, steel trucks, and then you've armed everybody with small arms and then that's really the point where you've got the danger. You know, where the way people really die is um, by being shot or beaten or killed um, in a militarised zone. Mm. Yeah. They don't, get, they don't die in dog fights by jet fighters, but that's where the big money gets spent. Mm. Mm, interesting. And... Um, in particular, it seems that you're you're emphasizing the the cost um, that this this weaponizing is having on West Papuan communities and people through through your organizing. Have you been able to connect with uh, many West Papuan people through this process? Oh, certainly. We've set up a website called the War in West Papua, which is showing where all the weapons are flowing from, which countries and which companies into Indonesia. And we're um, in connected. We're connected up with a group of people doing civil resistance in West Papua. A large group of people doing civil resistance in West Papua who are also explicitly working anti against anti military against militarism of their country. Uh, they're trying to set themselves up into a green sort of state, a green a sort of a green state. Um, and they are explicitly resisting the sort of militarism that they're facing, um, and they see they see the brunt of that militarism. But I have to say, it's not just West Papuans that we're in solidarity with. We're also in solidarity with First Nations people in Australia, who, of course, have borne the borne the brunt. And I'm here on Yagarit country at Maganshin, and you know the people here have borne that sort of military, the brunt of militarism for 200 years. You know, first through the penal um, and the castral state. You know, the castral state has been militarized from the beginning, and the way settlers got weapons, I imagine, is by the transfer of weapons from the military to settlers in order to take over the land. So we we're seeing that sort of castral state still rolling out here, 
And we know that, um, for example, in one of the major sponsors of land forces is a company that has delivered 65,000 weapons to police, mm. uh, an Australian company. So so this, this sort of militarised, and that, they, those are the weapons that killed that young man in the Northern Territory, and those people have asked for us to say no, disarm police, no weapons in the community. So we're also standing with those people. Um, obviously, we're, we're also in solidarity with people of Palestine and the people standing against companies like Elbit, the Israeli company, um, but in our action groups at the moment, you, you know, we're limited to some extent in the messaging and the, the scope of our action groups, but we'd love to collaborate with other action groups working against Elbeat or working around that um, justice in the justice for Aboriginal First Nations people. Mm. But to some extent, we have focused our solidarity on West Papua and um, we are developing friendships there. And we're also trying to get countries overseas doing weapons work to you know, action groups overseas doing weapons work. For example, a small group in Chicago that's uh, been moving against Boeing. They're also now, um, you know, recognizing the impact on West Papua. So we're trying to get that sort of the the solidarity message of West Papua, what's going on in Indonesia, to extend to other countries overseas that are uh, delivering weapons to Indonesia. Mm, great. Um- yeah, so many important alliances and struggles and it is good to hear that um, First Nations experiences and resistance to um, defence and these companies will be centred. Um, for those who are considering coming, it's it's in early October, I think, and um, what would you say right. to people around who are Considering so come, the engine. <laughs> come, it's going to be fun. We, we've, we've booked out the local uh, backpackers. We're not booked it out, but we've, we've booked this. So this, there'll be somewhere to stay. Uh, there'll be meals at the local hall, um, which was the place we're going to send it. So we'll have a place to look after. It'll be easy to find a place to stay. It'll be easy to find um, food and to be connected. And um, it's a good chance for solidarity between the climate movement activists and the peace activists and for people to start to understanding that, the peace movement um, that the peace movement drives, oh no, that militarism enforces extraction, and that that um, enforcement of extraction is, um, you know, what enforces deforestation and is also yeah. driving the climate crisis. And so we'll have a lot of people, um, you know, that we work already closely with from the climate movement uh, coming. So it's a good chance for that cross movement sort of um, uh, experiences. Mm. Wonderful. Thank you. I'm sure we'll continue to um, follow it closely as we build up to uh, the the event itself. And um, so thanks so much, so much for joining us today on the Radioactive Show. That was Margie Pistorius from Wage Peace outlining plans for the Disrupt Land Forces event taking place from the 1st to 7th of October in Mianjin. To find out more about their plans and perhaps plan a trip, you can look up the website disruptlandforces.org. Learn more about that campaign and others by visiting wagepeaceau.org and you can also check out MAPWA's report, Miners and Missiles. Uh, Thanks to Emma Crunch for that discussion with Margie Pistorius from Wagepeace that was broadcasted on the Radioactive Show on the 27th of August. 
And next up, we're going to play you a track by Olivia Dean, uh, who is a UK-based neo-soul singer. This is her track, Echo. I took five on the way home Called you for a little piece of mine Was out looking for some healing But it seemed a little hard to find No man's an island Do you not see that I need you As you need me A year, months, any weekend There's no match for my loyalty I'm sweet jumping to your defense Question, would you do the same for me? They say distance can make the heart grow fonder But for you I wonder Cause if I'm not by your side A little weight off me Fix up and be about it Cause my love is not a one-way street They say distance can make the heart grow fonder But for you I wonder Cause if I'm not by your side Are you still That was Olivia Dean's track, Echo. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. It is half past... That is not part of the show. (laughs) It is half past seven. Uh, We're going to go into a conversation that was um, aired on Women on the Line with Ayan and Dana Alshea who is a proud Palestinian. It's about the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, also known as BDS. Dana also talks about some common reasons people oppose the movement. 
Uh, and just to note, this show was originally aired on Monday, the 29th of August. Welcome to Woman on the Line, Dana. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here and to have um, and to have this opportunity to talk a bit about what's it like being Palestinian and about the experiences of me and my friends. Okay, I think that's a good place to start. Yeah. So what is it like to be Palestinian? I think being Palestinian is having this ongoing roller coaster of emotions of being proud of being Palestinian, but also at the same time being really anxious about the future and about the present and about what's happening around you and the instability and uncertainty that is surrounding your life um, by having a continuous presence of an ongoing settler colonial system that literally affects everything in your life. So you described it as settler colonialism. Yeah. Can you tell me more about that? Well, settler settler colonialism is basically bringing foreign settlers to a land that has, or a country that already has um, the indigenous people living there and trying to replace those indigenous people who are the Palestinians in Palestine uh, in this case, and bringing foreign settlers to replace them and to take over the land, to take over the, the governing systems, to take over the resources, uh, displace and um, kick out, basically, um, the Palestinians out of their homes. Um, I think for the past 74 years or 75 years, it's relative. They have somehow um, succeeded in forcefully displacing Palestinians and ethnically cleansing Palestinians out of Palestine. But at the same time, their success has been very limited to being geographic, um, their ideology of um, eradicating Palestinians and saying, you know, the old will die, the young will forget, is just not working because obviously the young have not forgotten. We have more than 7 million uh, Palestinian refugees around the world, besides Palestinians inside the Circle of Palestine, um, in the West Bank, in Gaza, and in the 1948 land. And um, every single one of these Palestinians, as young as it gets, knows that Palestine is for Palestinians. We know that there are ongoing attempts to not only ethnically cleanse us, but to kind of wipe the idea that there were ever Palestinians or that we ever had the right in the land. But I think because we're born with the occupation and the apartheid and um, uh, like these colonial powers around us, from a very young age, you realize that what's happening is wrong and your identity grows with you, being Palestinian and of, of having that right of being on that land. And so for that question, their success has been extremely limited, but our success has been way bigger because our identity is collective, our effort is collective, our resistance is collective, our history is collective. And I think it's all connected all around the world. And it's really hard to kind of disconnect us, uh, disconnect. Um, the Palestinian identity and history from Palestinians inside Palestine and outside Palestine. Thank you for that. There's a movement I want to talk about. It's gaining a lot of traction. It's BDS. Can you give us a working definition of what BDS is? Well, BDS is basically the boycott, divestment uh, movement. Um, it's a peaceful movement. Um, it focuses on, um, at first, they don't have a political stance. 
So they don't say we're with a two-set solution or a one-set solution. We're not standing with a specific party. We're standing with basic human rights. And um, their main job is to pressure um, companies and corporations that um, uh, function and manufacture in illegal Israeli settlements that are based on illegally confiscated or stolen Palestinian land in the West Bank to force them um, to divest uh, their businesses from these settlements and um, as a, and this is a peaceful way to pressure these um, these companies and corporations to respond to these demands because when they respond to these demands and divest from these settler um, uh, illegal settlements in the West Bank specifically, they will um, pressure the Israeli apartheid system um, to reduce or to somehow stop the ongoing apartheid in mm-hmm. Palestine. What companies or organizations are on the list that we might know of? Um, HP is one of them. HP Computers. Um, That's why I would never buy an HP computer. Don't buy an HP computer. Um, SodaStream. SodaStream was a a successful case. They they closed their manufacture. Yeah, their um, manufacturing uh, facilities um, in some of the Israeli settlements. Um, There's a lot of companies... um, one of the biggest companies is Puma. Also, Puma is sponsoring. Yes, Puma is sponsoring the illegal Israeli uh, states uh, football league. So there's a lot of huge companies that people can get access to, or like the data about these companies um, on the BDS website, and they can see what companies operate on illegal stolen Palestinian land. Not everyone is supportive of this movement. Why do you think they're reluctant or opposed to a movement that clearly seems like it's doing great work to um, bring attention to what's happening to Palestinians? Like I said, like BDS is bringing attention to what's happening in Palestine and is advocating for basic human rights for Palestinians. Um, I think they're reluctant about supporting BDS is the stigma that if you criticize Israel, you're anti-Semitic, which is completely wrong. When you criticize, you're criticizing war crimes, you're criticizing human rights violations, you're criticizing ethnic cleansing and genocide that's being committed in the 21st century. So I think, um, unfortunately, what Zionists has been um, successful at doing is connecting between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. And people somehow are scared of, you know, of, of taking a stance um, even if at heart they know what's right and what's wrong, and they believe in the human rights of the Palestinians, but they're somehow scared because they want to be—they do not want to be called anti-Semitic. And as I said, anti-Semitism is completely, completely refuse that. And it's also important to note that anti-Semitism is not a monopoly um, on a certain on the Israelis only. Anti-Semitism goes for every Jewish person on the planet, and it's completely refused and rejected. Um, but at the same time, it is not anti-Zionism. Anti-Zionism is an ideology. It's a political ideology that is based on eradicating Palestinians out of their, their land to build a nation state for the Jewish people and the Jewish people only, which is something that Israeli politicians have said over and over again. That was Dana al speaking with Ayan from Women on the Line about the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, uh, commonly known as BDS. 
You can learn more about BDS on their website at www.bdsaustralia.net.au and you can also listen to the rest of the episode and more from Women on the Line on the 3CR website or tune in on Mondays from 8.30am to 9am on, of course, 8.55am. All the way from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and touring Australia for the very first time is folk duo Watch House, formerly known as Mandolin Orange. From coffee houses to major festivals, Watch House has played it all with their heavenly harmonies, songs, and music. Watch House play the Melbourne Recital Centre 11th of October with support from the wonderful Charm of Finches. Also playing at Out on the Weekend at Seaworks in Williamstown, 8th of October. Love Police, proud supporters of 3CR. Brave men fall with the battle cry. Tears fill the eyes of their loved ones and their brothers. So it went for Joseph Warne. 3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. Next up, we're going to play you a track by Angie McMahon, her song Pastor from her 2018 album, sorry, 2019 album Salt. My bedroom is a disaster. My dog is got Sitting at the bar too much Kissing people in my head And saying rubbish things I should not have said And they're building things outside my window Everywhere I look there are signposts, signposts I just sit in my house making noise Stop. 
That was Angie McMahon's track, um, Salt. Dr. Eve Rees is a writer, historian, podcaster and lecturer in history at La Trobe University who has published widely across Australian gender, transnational and economic history. Eve is on the show this morning to talk to us about their new book releasing today. Um, it's called Nothing to Hide, Voices of Trans and Gender Diverse Australia. Welcome to the show, Eve. Thank you so much for having me. So... The book is coming out today, which is very exciting, Um, and Nothing to Hide is Australia's first mainstream anthology of trans and gender diverse writing. Um, Can you just tell us a bit more about the book? Yeah, sure thing. So it's a wonderful anthology of trans and gender diverse uh, writing and and also graphic storytelling that I've co-edited with um, three other trans writers, Sam Elkin, Alex Gallagher, and Bobak Saeed. Um, it's, uh, we believe that the first kind of book of its kind, the first kind of uh, book of trans voices published by a mainstream Australian publisher, and it features a mix of creative non-fiction, essays, uh, poetry, but also graphic storytelling, which is really cool as well. And our vision in editing the book was that we didn't want to be too prescriptive about what people had to write about. Um, because, you know, as many listeners would know, when trans people or other marginalised communities are asked to tell their stories, they're often asked just to kind of, you know, hand over their trauma, to kind of write essentially trauma porn, um, which, you know, is can be really re-traumatising, but also kind of limits... Um, these communities to really narrow a set of experiences when, of course, they're so much bigger and more complex. So we wanted to give our contributors to kind of a chance to write whatever they wanted to write about. And in some cases, that was their gender. Some people did write about, you know, childhood gender dysphoria or coming out experiences or things like that. But some of the other contributors write about other things that interest them um, altogether. So it's a really, really uh, rich um, collection of variety of voices. We've got a lot of First Nations contributors. Um, I think about a third of the contributors are First Nations, which is really wonderful. We've got um, a great piece by a woman called Stacey Stokes, who's a trans woman who's currently incarcerated in a men's prison, which sadly happens all too often in Australia. And yeah, and a bunch of other contributors from all around the country. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, having a diverse um, range of voices in a book like this is super important, um, especially when uh, it's often kind of marginalized groups are often kind of diluted down to a single narrative. Like you were saying, um, it's mm. often, you know, what's demanded of you is trauma porn, like tell me your sad story. Um, but especially for people who are not trans or gender diverse, um, having you know, an anthology like this to understand the kind of diversity of experiences um, is amazing. How did you select the writers to ensure this kind of um, huge diversity? Um, It was a daunting prospect because, you know, we could have filled probably 10 anthologies easily with the the wonderful trans and gender diverse writers operating on this continent. So we had to make some really tough decisions. Um, 
we did a mix of a kind of open call out for submissions and we also commissioned some pieces um, for writers who really knew and wanted to include because, um, you know, we wanted to make sure we had a good a good diversity of experiences. Um, you know, I think one area in which it's probably, you know, a bit less diverse than we would have liked is that it is still kind of... Um, heavily concentrated on, you know, the major metropolitan centres of the southeast of Australia. And I would love to see um, more regional trans writing in the future. So I, I think we really, me and the other editors really believe this is only the beginning. It's only the tip of the iceberg. And we have so um, much more to do and say in terms of trans creativity in this country. Yeah, definitely. Um, You've said, uh, I think, on an Instagram post that, you know, this book provides insights into the challenges and joys of of various trans experiences. Um, Can you talk to us a bit about why particularly focusing on trans joy is important? Sure. Yeah, well, as as we've been saying, so often trans people are reduced to their trauma. They're reduced to their gender dysphoria, their mental illness, their suffering... And, you know, all those, all those things happen and are important to talk about. But when um, that's all we talk about, it can kind of be re-stigmatising because it creates an idea that trans people are just a kind of... that we're victims and that we only experience misery. And then, of course, no one wants to be trans because you think you can't have a good life as a trans person. You're just going to be condemned to suffering. But when, you know, the truth is that we all know... Um, that coming out as trans and living your true self and, you know, your true gender and a body you've crafted and a name you've crafted can be an incredibly joyful and euphoric experience. And so we wanted to celebrate that as well. We've got some really, um, a really beautiful piece uh, by the Sydney writer Liz Duck Chong about gardening and the joy of kind of nourishing living things and watching them kind of slowly unfurl and come to light. We've got pieces that kind of talk about cooking as well and fashion and all sorts of kind of joyful uh, things that coexist with our gender. One of the pieces that I got to um, personally kind of focus on editing was by um, uh, Hayden Moon, um, a, a trans brother boy, who wrote a really wonderful piece about his journey through Irish dancing. He's the first um, kind of competitive trans Irish dancer in Australia, I believe, and he wrote this great piece about, you know, how his love of dancing um, interacted with his gender and that Irish dancing is a really binary kind of space and how he could kind of navigate that through his coming out process, but that he was ultimately able to keep dancing and pursuing this thing he loved, you know, as a transmasculine person. Oh, I love that so much. Um, I'm particularly now looking forward to reading that story. Um You've, you know, talked about a few different stories in there already. Do you have a personal favourite? Ah, I can never say that. (laughs) It's like children. Um, You know, you you love them all equally, of course. (laughs) Um, But, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, what what excites... Well, one of the many things that excites me about this anthology is that, you know, these aren't just you know, writers that we're platforming because we're a marginalised community. So these are some of the best writers in the country, I think. You know, people, we've got S.J. Norman um, featured in this anthology whose uh, debut collection of short stories, Permafrost, was shortlisted for last year's Stellar Prize. Um, we've also got, you know, Ellen Van Neerven, the amazing poet and writer who's won 
so many um, prizes for their extraordinary writing. Um, and Queen Eads as well, a really celebrate internationally renowned trans poet. So I love that we've got kind of people who are already winning prizes at the top of their game that, you know, that readers might have heard of. But we've also got um, Shreya Tamulka, who is some, a writer we discovered through the open submissions, who's only, um, well, I think they were 18 at the time of the submission and 19 now. And their piece is extraordinary. This is their first public published piece, but you wouldn't know it. You'd been think they've been writing for decades because it's so um, polished and beautiful exploration about um, how their transness interacts with their with their Indian heritage. Oh, that's absolutely incredible. Um, I love when you know you read someone and you're like, "Wow, where has this person been?" And then you realise they're literally 18 years old. I know. I know. <laughs> Makes me feel like it's a failure in life. Um, no, but it's yeah, it's really it was a joy to work with Shreya on editing that piece. Um, incredible. Uh, will there be a, an official launch for the book? There will be. We're so excited. Um, we're having a launch in Carlton on the sixteenth of September. Um, it's being launched by the ABC journalist Patricia Carbellis, and we're going to have. Um, sorry, I should have said the 15th of September, not the 16th. And it's, yeah, launched by Patricia Carbellis in Carlton uh, with readings from a number of the contributors. I'll be there. The other Melbourne-based editor, uh, Sam Elkin, will be there. And it should be a really, really fun night. So there'll be an invitation circulating today and we encourage people to attend. And anyone else who's interested, there's also an event this Thursday in two days' time at North Fitzroy Library. Um, where I'll be in conversation with two of the contributors, uh, Quinn Eads and Julie Peters, and we'll be selling copies of the book there if anyone wants to come along and and have a listen and buy a book. Amazing. Um, And where can people buy the book? Uh, Wherever good books are sold. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So as as you said in the intro, the official publication date today, um, it's published by Alan and Unwin, so a mainstream publisher, so it should be everywhere, whether it's, you know, readings, dimmicks, your local independent bookseller, which I really encourage people to buy them from, um, or you can also buy it online at Booktopia and places like that. So, And there's an e-book version as well, um, if anyone would prefer to read it in that one form. Amazing. Uh, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this morning, Eve, but thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about Nothing to Hide. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be on the program. Thank you. So that was Dr. Eve Rees talking to us about their work and their book, Nothing to Hide, which releases today. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao, and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, Next up, we're going to play a song by Joy Crooks. Joy is a UK-based neo-soul singer, and this is their track, Feet Don't Fail Me Now.
That was Joy Crooks with Feet Don't Fail Me Now. So last week on Tuesday Breakfast, we spoke about Singapore repealing Section 377A, which criminalized sex between men. Sean Menon is a youth social worker and advocate with the transgender community in Singapore since 2010. He was also a soapbox speaker at the most recent Pink Dot Singapore Gathering, which is a not-for-profit movement um, for and by LGBTQI plus Singaporeans and their allies. 
I caught up with Sean a few days ago to talk about his experience working with trans and LGBTQI plus youth um, and the effects that repealing Section 377A could have on mental health and societal views in Singapore. So welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Sean. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and the work you do? Sure, thanks. Um, so I'm a social worker in Singapore. And uh, apart from my day-to-day work where I do youth work, I also volunteer with the T Project, which is an organization for transgender individuals. Um, over there, we have a shelter for homeless individuals as well as counseling services, befriending services, uh, even tuition services. Anything that we find a gap in, we try to fill. Um, yeah, apart from that, we give trainings, we go around the world giving conference talks, etc. That's pretty much me. Cool. How did you get into this work? Well, I'm a trans person myself, so I think it was a natural progression somewhat. Although I have to say that I did take a break from the community for a period because I just wanted to feel comfortable with my own life. Um, when I got back into the community was after after a couple of years being a social worker and realizing that there wasn't really much talk about the LGBTQ plus community within the social work sector. Um, and Jun Chua, who is the founder of the T Project, showed up at my agency to give a talk. And when I heard her talk, I realized that there was still so much that needed to be done. Um, so I thought, I should volunteer my time. And as I spoke with her, I realized that especially for the youth community, there was still a big gap in that five years or so that I had decided to take a break, not much had progressed. So I felt like it was my responsibility as a slightly older person to come back and, you know, give my time to the young people. Yeah, that's... um. That's definitely important, I feel like, to take that break so that you're more settled in yourself before you can, you know, dive in and start helping other people. Yeah, definitely. I think for us, um, as a transgender person myself, it was just about, you know, your, your whole idea of transitioning is about being comfortable and being in a place where you finally feel accepted. And I guess I got there, right, when I started passing and living a heteronormative lifestyle that I kind of got used to it for a while but you wake up one day and you realize that you're still not really accepted so you slightly start gravitating back to the people that you know accept you for who you are yeah absolutely the community is so important yeah. um, so it's been in the news recently that Singapore is repealing three uh, section 377a of the penal code which is a mm-hmm. colonial era law Um, that criminalizes sex between men. Um, And while I've read that it hasn't actually been enforced um, for a very long time, um, in your work and in your life, how have you seen it actually affect um, LGBT people there? I think it's really a concept. You know, it's it's an idea that rides over LGBTQ plus people's heads. Right. And it's it's sex between two men. So it doesn't actually directly impact lesbian individuals. you know, and a lot of the other community, really. But it's this thing that rides over you and reminds you that you're not accepted. You know, it's just a constant message that you will always get that, yeah, I, I'm illegal in a way, right? So, yeah, it, it really, I mean, to be very frank, it hasn't affected the day-to-day lives of people as much as you would expect. 
but it has left that mental imprint on people that I'm not, I don't belong and I am yeah not accepted by the by the government of this country. Yeah, and I've seen even with the repealing of this specific section, the government is still standing strong on um, not wanting to legalize gay marriage. So, yeah, yeah, I feel like that reflects, you know, the kind of effect of this on people's psyches. Yes, definitely. I look; it's been a long time. I mean, that we have been having conversations about three seven seven A long before the Pink Dot movement. Uh, which is, I think it's about 12 years now already this year, right? And the Pink Dot movement was started with the purpose of protesting 3770, right? And you see, like, 12 years of fighting later, it's finally happening now. Um, as I said, it started way before that. Um, but all this time, we've had conversations. So for myself, uh, I am an advocate in, the organi- uh, in as a member of T-Project, we have had conversations with politicians, um, with policyholders about repealing, and we know what they think about, and they're purely doing it because of votes. They you know don't want to upset one side over the other. So I've had like major players in politics tell us that like yeah you know completely see where you're coming from, but I just can't do it, and we have to find a way to make sure that you know we don't upset the religious majority as well. Right. So a lot of it is, it's just politics and it's just a way to to make sure that they continue to to get their votes and stay in power. Right. And in, in a way, like, if you ask me how I feel about the repeal, it's very two-sided. Like, I'm glad for the community. Um, I'm happy that there's something to celebrate about. But all this time, 377A never really had a direct impact on the day-to-day lives of people. So to repeal it and then on the other side, take away that possibility of marriage, which will have a uh, you know live lived experience kind of impact. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. It's very two-sided for me. So you mean like in a way, it's like just this, there's a win being celebrated, but it's almost detracting from a bigger issue that would impact more lives. That's right, yeah. So 377 was never enforced. Yeah. Right, so, yeah, you know, you, you didn't really have to worry about it as much. And then now you feel like, well, but gay marriage may never happen now. <laughs> or when will it happen? It might take a much longer time than we had hoped for. Do you think that it's a step towards... Uh, you know, eventually an acceptance of gay marriage? Or do you think it's more like a distraction and it will take even longer? Um, I think that, it, that it's definitely a step forward because it is telling the community um, and telling people that the government is going to openly start accepting LGBTQ plus people, right? It's this idea of marriage, though, putting it down uh, on paper to say that it's not going to happen it's quite scary though and that's the way that Singapore tends to work once they put things on paper it always makes it more difficult and complicated there's this idea um, where it's like friction by design you know, they intentionally make your lives difficult um, when it's spoken and written out on paper well before I felt like it's it's not on paper it's it's not uh, black and white so there's still a sense of hope yeah that makes sense um you said you work with 
you know, lots of uh, kind of you work with trans people and other people in the queer community, mm -hmm. um, specifically around mental health. Yeah. What does that look like for young people in Singapore at the moment? To be honest, it's not great. Um, one of the things that happens with the repeal is it's a lot more public, so it's being discussed a lot more. Um, Singapore, the the nature of the LGBTQ plus community, at least back then, it was always a sense of let's just not talk about it and everyone is safe. You know, if even with coming out, we we'll always give talks, right? And we say like, in other countries and other cultures, coming out is a moment of pride and it's about being yourself. But in Singapore, it's like, is it necessary? You know, like you'll be accepted. And we see a lot of like older, like, you know, Asian mothers who will be, just don't tell me that you're gay, but you can bring your boyfriend or husband home and we will have a big family meal and I will love him. Undoubtedly, just don't use the word that you're gay. Right. And that tends to be the culture in Singapore. Like we don't talk about it. Everyone keeps quiet about it. And let's just live our lives. But the moment that it started being spoken of, it's in the news, it's in social media, there's a lot of backlash. Right? So currently what we are seeing on social media and things like that is all the hate comments, you know, the um, certain groups, hate groups coming up, giving statements and putting it out there, making it more explicit that you're not welcomed. Right? And for a young person who's, not really able to discern the difference between support and you know people who just have nothing better to do um it is difficult and it plays on their mental health right it's so much more apparent now that there's a large majority of people who don't accept to me and it's happening within families as well so as i mentioned earlier like you know previously you don't talk about it but everyone lives you know happily and you know everything is fine but when it's being discussed in the news, then families start talking about it, fathers start making comments without realizing that they may have a gay child. And those things are starting to affect the mental health of young people. Do you think it's different from when you were growing up in Singapore when you were younger? Like, do you think that um, the societal kind of level of acceptance has changed? Generally, yes. Yeah. I think when I was younger, um, it was, we were really in the closet a lot of the time. You only came out among your community, only people that you felt really, really safe with. Uh, generally, though, if you really spoke to someone and told them that you were gay um, or you were trans, whatever, they would just be like, yeah, you know, uh, let's just not let it affect our relationship. So for myself personally, like, you know, when I was a teenager and I decided to tell a bunch of my guy friends that I was trans they were all like none of them replied to my message none of them responded but within about a week or two everyone started using my preferred name and pronouns and you know, life just went on so nobody wanted to talk about it we just lived our lives as per normal right um, but with time, I think, and, and I think it's also with media, right? Things are being spoken about a lot more. So with the younger community, they are really out there. Uh, there's a lot of exposure as well with what's happening uh, in other countries. So they expect certain um, levels of acceptance among their peers or amongst their family. So the I, I would say that, I mean, I'm, I'm not that old. <laughs> so I would say it would be, 
a 20 year time frame of sorts you know since when i openly came out to now and in that 20 years things have progressed so quickly that maybe our generation is not really ready for the type of um yeah the voices the strong voices that our young people have and you see that like so now a lot of our young advocates are the ones who are standing up and fighting and you know speaking out and and they do it because they have that platforms as well so a lot of them are tiktok celebrities and things like that and so you know they use these platforms to really make their voices heard which we never dared to do when we were at that age you know yeah, I think social media is so important for the youth these days. Like it allows for a level of connection that we never had. And we're not that old, you're right. <laughs> but that the um, 20 year difference, it's huge in terms of, you know, how people find community. Like we, we didn't have those opportunities. Yeah, yeah. It was hard to find back then. It yeah. was it, like you didn't know where to go to find a community. We had the internet too, but it was all like, Everyone that I found online back then was in the US or in a different country or somewhere in the UK, right? Um, maybe you had to find like Friendster back then. Yeah, and you, you wouldn't know if someone was gay or not. You just had to look at a picture and like kind of try and guess and then <laughs> hope for a friend request. <laughs> yeah. 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 That a lot of my friends that I still have right now are based on Friendster. <laughs> Like people that I met back then, you know, these are these are people that are still part of my community. Yeah, yes, yes. I guess my my point is that the impact of social media really did it did have an impact on the community, um, in finding space as well. Uh, and right now with with the repeal being so public and spoken about on social media and media in general, it's also causing the, those spaces to to feel less safe. Definitely. Um, what sort of activism are the youth kind of engaging in at the moment, especially are they still um, actively kind of campaigning for gay marriage to be legalised? Um, at this point of time, I think there is concern. Uh, what we're seeing a lot more of are just statements. We also play the system in Singapore. So, you know, you, we know that in Singapore, if you push too hard, you take a few steps back and you get pushed back. So we also need to understand that there are large powers in play that have a lot of power to completely destroy what progress has already been made. Right? So with young people as well, I mean, us older advocates are also telling, kind of guiding them and saying like, put out this statement because we need to be heard, right? But do it in a way like, and we, they send, that, send it to us, right? So that we can help to read and bet and make sure that it is not something that they can be sued over because that's a reality in Singapore that if you say something too strongly or you upset the wrong person, your entire life can be affected. You know, there are people who have been sued to bankruptcy, multiple people who have been sued to bankruptcy, who have been jailed, you know, who are forced to leave the country. And then all that work that you put in is nothing, right? So yeah, what we're doing right now is taking little steps, celebrating what we've got right now um, and understanding the system, right? So writing little statements, getting the support that we can. So we are trying to also uh, work with the religious communities that have stepped up to say that they support the repeal. Um, so those will be your support systems as well. All the, all the non-LGBTQ plus communities that are also stepping up to say we are on your side, 
be making allies and making friends right now. At this point of time, I think this is the best that we can expect. Frankly, I don't think anyone really expected gay marriage to happen anytime soon in Singapore. I think even with 377A, uh, we were just, we were hoping, but we didn't expect it to happen this year. So if, yeah, if we continue with the fight that we've had and we continue uh, doing it in the way that we do, there is hope that it will happen in the future. I can use the Ping Dot movement and 377 actually as an example. If you think about Ping Dot, it's not a hard fought, strong kind of movement. It started because all they wanted to say was that, hey, we are here and we're actually quite peace-loving, friendly people, which is why it's a picnic. And it's all about family. It's always orientated around family and getting your the people that accept you. There's always dogs and you know cats and it's always loving, right? With, because the idea in Singapore has always been, oh, um, the, this community destroys families. Right? So we, are, we have to be smart about how we then market and play it so that you show that hey, we're just normal people as well. Yeah. And that's why I have to keep doing that. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's such an important point that you have to understand the system that you're up against and, you know, you, that your advocacy and your activism has to match that it can't just be it can't look like advocacy here in Australia for example yeah yeah so I studied in Australia right I studied social work in Australia and going back to Singapore I think that was a big culture shift for me too because in Australia part of my education was going to pride and picketing um you know writing into radio stations about something that they said and like that was part of my upbringing as a social worker coming back i really had to tone it down and understand culturally how things were so different understand politics understand economics of all of it and i continue to figure it out but right now i know that the, the thing that works for me at least here in singapore is talking about things that they can't deny like mental health you know it, it and showing numbers so doing research uh, putting out papers that's what works here, right? Making friends, I guess, making allies. Um, even within the government, we try to make friends. Uh, we, we invite them over to have a cup of tea. And I guess that that's what helps and that's what works, yeah. Well, that's amazing. I'm so glad there's people like you in Singapore doing this work. Um, I think it's incredibly important. And thank you so much for talking to us today on Thursday Tuesday Breakfast. Um, we really, really appreciate your perspective. Uh, yes. <laughs> Thanks for having me. So that was youth social worker and trans advocate Sean Menon talking to us from Singapore about the effects of repealing Section 377A on LGBTQI plus youth. We're going to go to a track now uh, by Christine and the Queens, uh, who is, Christine is a French singer-songwriter and this song was released in 2020 as part of the album La Vita Nova and it's called People I've Sad. I've, sorry, it's called People I've Been Sad. <laughs> you can tell we're getting to the end of the show, can't you?
That was Christine and the Queens uh, with uh, their song, People I've Been Sad. The Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. 
The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion, and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. Ross House has community meeting rooms available for hire at subsidised rates. Perfect for small meetings, student study groups, Zoom conferencing and seminars. Facilities include free Wi-Fi, display screens for presentations, projector and sound system and a Zoom conferencing system. HEPA filter units have been placed in every meeting room. You can book and pay via their website, rosshouse.org.au or contact reception during office hours on 9650-1599. Ross House is a 3CR supporter. PX Fano is a Pacifica LGBTIQ plus podcast providing a platform for Pacifica communities to unpack and discuss the narratives and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Presented by Pacific X, a collective that celebrates Pacific Island LGBTIQA plus communities and meaningful connections that honours cultural and gender identities. You can catch the podcast series on your favourite podcast platform. Supported by 3CR and funded by the Victorian Government Multicultural Communications Outreach Programme. For more information and to hear our podcast episodes, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash PXFANA, spelt P-X-W-H-A-N-A-U. You're on Tuesday Breakfast. We're coming to the end of the show and we wanted to just make a quick little uh, news uh, announcement. So early childcare workers across the country are taking strike action on Wednesday, September 7th, uh, which is early childhood education, educators day actually. And they're demanding better pay and conditions and urgent action on staff shortages. Uh, so a little bit of background, early childhood educators day recognizes the work of Australia's educators in early learning services to the well-being and healthy development of the children in their care. Workers are demanding changes to conditions and pay and childcare centers are struggling to operate due to a lack of staff with many failing to meet essential staff to child ratios. Uh, Department of Education figures from February show that 11.2% of childcare centers require special permissions to operate because they don't meet the required ratios. And the research uh, shows that more than two thirds of early childcare workers do hundreds of hours of unpaid work to satisfy regulatory requirements. Uh, the Australian Institute's August 1st childcare review recommended reforms such as price caps based on a proportion of families' income, addressing the balance of private and government operators in the industry, and increasing pay for workers. The Albanese Labor government has committed to lifting the childcare subsidy rate to 90%. However, this does not address the ongoing staff shortages or the poor pay and conditions for workers. So this is why childcare workers are going on 
strike on September 7th, early childcare day, uh, so that's next week, demanding the federal government respect early childcare workers and commit to fix early childhood education, uh, research into unpaid hours, and to further read uh, about what's going on, you can go to The Conversation, which has a brilliant article and it's called Early Childhood Educators Are Slaves to the Demands of Box-Ticking Regulations. Um, and of course, stay tuned to 3CR because we'll be uh, coming to you with more details on that. Um, but that brings us to the end of the program. Um, if you would like to listen back to the show, we will be podcasting uh, the show later today. If you missed any of those earlier uh, conversations uh, we aired. Uh, otherwise, as always, we have Accent of Women with Giselle Hanna coming up next and we hope you enjoy your Tuesday. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.